0: I'm Mark Caro and welcome to episode 72 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Carrie Baker, a music publicist who played an integral role in the careers of bands we love. I first got to know Carrie in the mid-1980s when I had a summer internship at Time, Inc. and was working on a magazine startup called Picture Week. At the time, my favorite band was REM, which recently had released its immersive third album, Fables of the Reconstruction. So I convinced the Picture Week editors that REM should be featured in an issue, even if it was only a prototype. The next thing I knew, I was in IRS Records' New York offices interviewing Peter Buck, Mike Mills, and Bill Berry as they got their first glimpse of the video for their new single, Can't Get There From Here. Getting R.E.M. placed in a still-in-development magazine was far from Baker's greatest coup, but I sure appreciated it. It was the beginning of a long-standing journalist-publicist relationship in which we understood each other's tastes. Far more interesting and consequential than this interaction, how baker came to get hired at irs to become rem's publicist it's quite a story with insomnia playing a role then there's what he did to push forward this mysteriously evocative guitar band and synth pop was ruling the airwaves baker grew up in the chicago area and at a young age wrote a blues fanzine and mounted blues shows when he saw a blind guitarist perform at the maxwell street market he wrote up a profile of him and submitted it unsolicited to the chicago reader The Alternative Weekly Reader accepted it, and Baker's professional career in music had begun. He was still in high school. He later wrote for the Illinois Entertainer and other publications. He was attending Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, in 1975 when he went to a campus bar to see a band from nearby Rockford. As he describes it, my world changed the band was cheap trick playing the songs that eventually would make them famous yet at this point not even signed to their first label cheap trick later would be among Carrie baker's clients after baker beat long odds to get that irs records publicity gig in 1984 he worked not only with rem but also the Go Go's, who had just released talk show the alarm concrete blonde and two bands spun off from the english beat general public and fine young cannibals he successfully lobbied the label to sign one of his and my favorite bands the dbs he also managed to get the madison wisconsin duo Timbuk three who were writing their hit single the future so bright i gotta wear shades onto saturday night live but when rem left irs in 1988 a dispirited baker decided it was time for him to go too He moved to head of publicity at the larger Capitol Records, where the stars often came with their own publicists. He worked records by M.C. Hammer, Bonnie Raitt, and Garth Brooks, and placed the Smithereens on Saturday Night Live. He met one-on-one with Tina Turner so she could tell him the one thing she would do to promote her upcoming album. He partied with the Beastie Boys and saw Paul McCartney do a lunchtime rehearsal concert at an empty Broadway theater. He also had a negative interaction with McCartney's team and soured his experience at the label. Baker went on to do publicity at the smaller Morgan Creek label, where he worked on Shelby Lynn's album Temptation and tried to break such melodic acts as Mary's Danish, Eleven, and Miracle Legion. In 2004, Baker founded his own PR firm, Conqueroo. The name is a Chicago blues reference. Do you get it? And last March, after 42 years in the business, Baker shuttered his company and retired. He's returned to his first love, writing about music, and is trying to work up a book. Speaking from his Palm Springs home, Baker recalled the arc of a rock and roll career, one in which he was able to apply his skills and passion to promote music that has made the world a better place. He has had some adventures along the way. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Carrie Baker. I'd
1: worked for a Chicago label out of Glenview, Illinois, called uh, Ovation Records from about 1979 to 81. A lot of, a lot of country. Which was very good for a uh, Jewish urban punk rock kid from from Chicago, and it taught me country and positioned me really well for the Americana. That plus REM later, uh, right. and, and the punk rock I was listening to, I was all set for Americana. It's still still one of my favorite genres of music. But no, I worked for uh, for Ovation Records, a uh, label that was very much under the national radar, and despite. Uh, the hard work I put into it—it uh, it just was what it was—and to catapult that to 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 IRS uh, and then suddenly have a new album by the Go Go's talk show and new album by REM Reckoning and Declaration by uh, uh, the Alarm and and uh, the Bachelor Party soundtrack, which had the Flesh Tone single and eventually Concrete Blonde and uh, I rallied to help get the DB signed and uh, you know uh, from from the embers of English Beat came General Public. And uh, fine young cannibals. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a, an amazing way to come into the West Coast and to come into to really over the radar uh, music publicity. I worked very hard. And uh, I think I realized I had I lived here. I made this change when one night, a few weeks into to, to living in LA and working at IRS uh, on the AM Records lot, I'm walking through the AM lot. It's now about eight o'clock, it's dark. I kind of forget that this is the AM lot. And I hear this trumpet. And it's, 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 uh, it's Herb Alpert. And I'm like, holy shit. It was Herb wow. Alpert playing trumpet in, in, in his office at about eight o'clock at night on the a lot. I think I live here. So I, uh, you know, my car, my, 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 my modest, uh, dented, rusted, uh, from Chicago, uh, slush, uh, Nissan Sentra was parked next to Charlie Minor, the senior vice president of radio promotions, uh, uh, Rolls Royce, one of two that he owned. And I said to myself, I get it. You know, I will never make as much as, uh a guy who's National Head of Radio Promotion for A&M, but uh, I'm damn lucky to uh, uh, to work here on this lot with, with REN and with with all these great bands and equally great co-workers. And, you know, I just learned so much. It was, you know, the, the, the late 80s for me were, were an amazing time of personal growth. And, and even though I don't like to look back, live in, in, in the past, I mean, I, I don't think I ever had more fun working than between 1984 and say 1990, uh, my IRS years, and uh, though they were a little more challenging in corporate, my Capitol years. Yeah. Getting getting to party with uh, the Beastie Boys on the rooftop of the world-famous Capitol Records building was something. uh, Seeing Paul McCartney do a a noontime uh, rehearsal at at an empty, dark Broadway theater. Uh, I was in New York that week, and I thought, who could I... What journalist could I bring to this McCartney rehearsal? who's really going you to know, appreciate it? And I immediately thought, I would have you you would have but but, but I, I, of, <laughs> I, don't, I, I think I thought of you as being in Chicago, so uh, i would have I would have come to New York for that well, you would have had about uh, fifteen minutes uh, to get there, but i I would have done I, it too. I ended up uh, asking Mark uh, Bill Flanagan, uh, who was then the editor of musician and later the the head of, a head of editorial for MTV Networks and VH1 and now CBS Sunday Morning, author of many books. And right. I guess it was office to pick him up at uh, uh, Musician Magazine in the Billboard Viacom building, also the home of, of MTV. And uh, in his office, um, and, and by now, I really felt like I was a Midwestern boy who'd arrived. Uh, there's Bill Flanagan, but there's also Elvis Costello and his erstwhile wife, Cots, Kate, Cott. Uh, and the four of us went down, took a walk down to Broadway and uh, into this theater and saw a, a, a fundamentally a private rehearsal, The you know, the five of us and a few others uh, in this otherwise empty Broadway theater at noon on a, on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or something. And, uh, you know, Paul, who I've never met, uh, comes right up to Elvis afterwards. And that's that's how I got to meet Paul McCartney. Um, in fact, I later worked with Ringo, so I guess I've met two Beatles.
0: And, yeah, that's right around when Paul and Elvis were uh, writing songs together, because that's right, because they had a few co-writes on that Flowers in the Dirt album, which was the first that's one right. he was touring behind. Which ages. is the one that
1: I worked on. I mean, I didn't really work on it because he had a uh, independent publicist of his own who was very protective. And in fact, I think I pissed him off by asking him for more uh, details on, on Paul, so I could communicate, uh, you know, better at, at marketing meetings. And uh, I heard he got really pissed at me and, and said some bad things about my, my my nosiness or something to the chairman of Capital EMI, uh, uh, eventually hastening my demise. But uh, whatever, uh,
0: you know. It's terrible uh, to want to know more information about a client you're trying to promote. That's a really bad thing. I would. say. It, it
1: really is. Uh, all I was doing was trying to to be in the know. Uh, But, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, Paul, uh, one one of the most important recording artists in recording history, uh, I was just damn glad to be, uh, you know, two degrees of separation from him, if not one. And, uh, you know, got to work with uh, Hammer and and, uh, Bonnie Raitt uh you know the whole team of us worked uh, i mean i I can't take singular credit for what what happened at capital I had a staff of about eight people on two coasts but one significant thing is that uh, i really had plenty of work to do and i didn't need any additional work thank you very much at capital I, i you know came in early in the morning and i i left with my head spinning at about uh you know six seven at night but uh i was asked by the manager of garth brooks uh, who, you know, of course, Garth was on Capitol, the Capitol Nashville, which was a very separate staff doing a very separate repertoire and, and not really part of my staff nor my responsibility. But could I possibly help Garth Brooks at all? And uh, I said, I'll try. You know, I mean, I, I knew the manager and I had hung out with her a little bit and knew her a bit, uh, did what I could. And uh, she took note of that, which then helped me. At a later incarnation in my career, when uh, you know she set me up with a, an interview with Sony Nashville, I actually got a job offer there, but wasn't sure I wanted to move to Nashville. Wasn't sure I wanted to leave California. I'm still, sure, I'm still not sure I'd want to leave California. Uh, I've been here now for most of my life.
0: Uh,
1: yeah. 39 years this year.
0: I was going to say that one of the things when I met you, I felt like you were a kindred spirit. Part of the reason was that you were working with bands that I loved, like R.E.M. and Let's Active, um, you know, and then later the DBs and, you know, and and I like the Go-Go's as well. And, you know, IRS was a cool label. But also, you know, we both are from Chicago or Chicago area. I grew up in Evanston um, and we also both were college journalists mm-hmm. so you know you were pursuing journalism beforehand which was part of the reason I would guess that you were good at this and that you understood what journalists wanted and you understood what music fans wanted because you loved the music um, where in Chicago did you grow up and how much did that Chicago yeah, I was
1: background the, I was born on the west side I was literally born on the west side but whisked immediately to the south side. Uh, and I lived at 89th and South shore. I went down there a few years ago and not as, not as glamorous as it sounds. Uh, it's gone downhill a little bit. Kind of reminds me of like North Sheridan road a bit, but, uh, it's, it's abutted by uh, steel mills and and industry and not on the shores. I, you know, I guess I forgot that anyway, I was very young when, when we moved to Wilmette just North of Evanston. And, uh, fortunately, uh, I had a few major influences, uh, a, a science teacher uh, in junior high in Wilmette knew that I was not really did not have proclivity for science, but somehow or other, the science instructor had a very expensive because uh, they, they are expensive subscription to Billboard, and he would bring me every issue of Billboard. I'm now about thirteen or fourteen, hooked on pop music and reading Billboard and 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 uh, you know uh, learning about the insides of the inside of the music business and thinking this is what I think I want to do. Uh, when I got to uh, high school at New Trier, uh I walked right into the radio station, an actual 88.1 FM, you know, broadcast station, not carrier current, not 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 just in the uh, lunchroom, but I mean, a real radio station that broadcast from about you could get it from about Lincoln Park uh, down the you know Lake Lake Michigan shore all the way up to about uh, maybe the state line, uh, Zion, uh, Kenosha. Uh, I once got it down to uh, Fullerton, and I was thrilled. Um, anyway, I did a blues show for them, and uh, I also started a blues fanzine. Uh, but one day, I was taking a walk through the Northwestern campus. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't in college, and even when I was, I didn't go to Northwestern. But I uh, uh, I used to like to hang out in downtown Evanston, better record stores. I'd go there after after school sometimes, and I was taking a walk through the Student Union, and there's this thing in 1981 called 1971 called the reader and I'm like the what and, and it looked a little like the the seed which was a an underground newspaper but a little more legit it's like if if, if, if an underground newspaper and a you know traditional daily newspaper made it there'd be this thing called the weekly and uh, you know I didn't know from the Village Voice and I didn't know from the LA weekly it wasn't even around yet this is one of the first and I uh, I had been down to Maxwell Street Market in Chicago. My father had taken me there because he wanted me to see. He thought I would only want to see it once, uh, but he wanted to show me where he had shopped as a young son of the East, Eastern European immigrants. And um, so we went down to, to Maxwell Street, and you know, lo and behold, there are all these street singers with slide guitars, and I'm like, "Holy fuck!" And, and so I, so I see this thing called the Reader, and I think, you know. I met this blind street singer, maybe late 60s. I mean, I speak of somebody in their late 60s now and seemed really old to me then when I was 13 or 14. But I uh, got his phone number. He's playing like slide guitar. His name is Blind Darvella Gray. Uh, And uh, I thought he'd be a really good article for this Chicago Reader thing. So I called him up and I got a few new quotes. I mean, I'd met him and we had spoken a little bit in person, but I, I got a few new quotes. I asked him some questions, some of it just for background narrative. And I sent it, uh, typed up to the Chicago Reader, 11 East Illinois Street, uh, 606, whatever. Right. And, uh, um, and I thought, yeah, yeah, uh, bad chance. And I went back about my life. Uh, anyway, there I was in print like uh, a week later. It was like, wow, uh, I can do this. So I started covering shows and doing interviews for them at the Aragon and Suddenly, I was like this 14, 15, 16-year-old writing for the Chicago Reader. And, and they had better writers than I did. They had uh, David Witz, who was a very good writer. He's kind of out of the business now, I think. There was eventually John Millward, you know, very erudite. And, and I, I never considered myself to be, you know, like scholarly when it comes to music writing. And eventually, Don McLeese uh, and a few others. But uh, they let me write for them, which was very good of them. And uh, I went down and did a number of different interviews and a number number of different genres, and you know I liked I liked uh, rock and roll uh, uh, power pop. Uh, I was liking things at the time like uh, glitter rock. I was liking Lou Reed. I was liking ELO. I was liking The Move. I was like you know Badfinger. That was kind of my 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 uh, you know I was all ready for Cheap Trick who would become a major uh, band in my life along with REM, but that's a different story and had more to do with the Midwest than my moving to the West. Anyway, I, I wrote for the reader until I went to, and I took a journalism class at Nutriere, which was very, um, I don't want to say fortuitous. It was it was a very good thing because I, I by the time I got to journalism major in college, I think I really knew about 80% of what I needed, needed to know from this high school class, which got right in there and taught you how to write a lead and taught you how to edit, taught you the editing symbols, taught you how to report taught you what to, you know how to you know how to, how to deal with notes and transcripts and it was very helpful so uh, thank you Marilyn Sherman the uh the high school journalism teacher I became features editor of the uh New West News and uh there was an underground paper in, in in my high school too and I wrote for them on occasion so uh, you know by the time I got to college I was all set not to study uh and 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 that that was a self-fulfilling prophecy I've never been much of a student always been a little bit ADD and always been very extracurricular. So I, I, on day one, I walked into the daily newspaper at Northern Illinois University and said, Hi, I'm this journalism student who's written for the Chicago Reader and all these Chicago papers. Can I write for you? Oh, sure you can. Okay, good. So I was the now the music reporter for the daily paper on campus and I uh, continued freelancing, including for Cream Magazine. So and I also took off a semester to be the editor of... Uh, an alt-weekly publication that hit both Rockford and DeKalb. Uh, by then, I'd lived in DeKalb, which was 40,000 surrounded by cornfields, but it kind of threw me. I, I, I didn't know how, how sophisticated a, a, an, alt, an alt-weekly in a town like Rockford would be. Uh, you know, kind of kind of in the middle of it, it, too, was surrounded by cornfields, but bigger population, like 150,000, I thought. I didn't really understand the city like that, being from the biggest city and than going to school in a small college town, but eventually I became very at home with Rockford. I had a social life there, and uh, lo and behold, um, somebody tells me about a band there that I should check out called Cheap Trick. And by the way, they're playing—they're uh, playing my college town uh, t- uh, tonight. And I should, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm really tired. I I don't know that I could go out and hear music tonight. No, you really need to. They're like a combination of the Who, the Kinks, the Move, and not the Who. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm not too tired for that. And I went out to the Uprising Tavern, uh, capacity maybe 150, and uh, they did three sets a night, uh, five bucks. Uh, that logo, those songs, that lineup, and uh, my my world changed. i was like, wow, the Midwest is not just corporate rock like REO and Sticks and Head East. The Midwest might be getting cool. And, and 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 these guys are from Rockford. That that city I really didn't think, you know, such a groundbreaking band could come from. What year um, was this? So this is about 75 when I first uh laid eyes and ears on Cheap Trick. They they got their contract a year later and their their album was out two years after that. But uh right. I, I was hearing them sing Surrender and you know, uh, uh, all kinds of songs that were on the first three albums that, that Rick Nielsen had already written. It was, it was life-altering. And and to have them 30 miles up the road was was amazing. And I used to go up to Rockford a lot because, the, you know, you couldn't just email your copy to your editor. You, I had to drive it up even, even in the middle of winter. In fact, sometimes the issue would be a day late if I couldn't make it up one day because of snow. But uh, I went up to Rockford a lot and became friends with Bunny Carlos, who's no longer a core member of the band, although I think he's still a shareholder and certainly part of their heritage. And, uh, you know, he played a whole bunch of 45s stacked up with with a drum spindle uh, uh, holding them uh, together. And he played me the B-sides of all of them. And, uh, you know, he'd smoke a bunch of cigarettes and I didn't, but uh, but he did. And, you know, learned a lot about music from him. And uh, so, I mean, between Cheap Trick being this this kind of band from Illinois during my college years that was sort of breaking the the uh, 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 the corporate rock tradition and and later on just just four or five years later as a graduate being turned on to REM in about 1982 by Evanston's Matter magazine uh, I, I I think I would basically heard of them but I I didn't realize there was something I really needed to listen to until uh, I began to read about them and. Person behind this this endeavor began to tell me, uh, Matter magazine, edited by a woman named Liz Phillips, who was a Medill School of Journalism graduated Northwestern, or still a student at the time, and had this very legit fanzine. Uh, looked good. She worked really hard on the production values. Uh, written well. Steve Albini wrote for it, hmm. and first uh, she was the first to extol REM, um, and and the replacements too. So I, 1982, I knew about both bands. And, and I thought, you know, this is this is very close to my my lineage. Uh, the stuff that they're doing, the the the, the jangling guitars and the, the cryptic lyrics, and and uh, uh, but the catchy songs, and uh, they, they really don't sound like anybody else. And uh, you know, uh, one day then uh, I'm, I'm, I, I moved from an apartment in Rogers Park to a coach house in Wrigleyville um, or Lakeview. And uh, I'm at my Lakeview coach house and a, an envelope comes in the mail because again, there was no email and no, no, like, you know, hourly news updates from, from variety, like, like you have now and stuff like that. So it was a letter, form letter that said that uh, there was a vacancy at IRS records for uh, a head of publicity. And I thought about that for a minute. And it's the middle of winter in Chicago and the winds are blowing off the lake and I'm in Lakeview, and and uh, I'm thinking. Well, I, I did do this job at IRS record. I mean, at Ovation Records in Glenview, a little label. They had some country. They had a few pop acts. They had they had uh, uh, you know Steve Dahl's anti disco theme, uh, Go Fit Number 58. I had a little bit of experience, but it wasn't like if they were going to judge me by hip cachet, uh, Ovation wasn't going to cut it. But instead, they how did they to- know to
0: how did they know to mail that to you?
1: No, they, they, it was a press release sent to everybody on their on their mailing list. Apparently, allegedly, they got 60 applicants, talked to 40, uh, talked to 20 more than once, and hired one, and that was me. So the mathematical odds of that were one of the great, it was like winning the lottery, but I didn't see it that way. I, I, I rolled up my sleeves and I knew I had a lot of work and a lot of proving to do. Uh, it was going to require moving to a new place. It was a whole lot slicker, music business-wise, than, uh, than than LA. And um, anyway, like I said um, earlier, uh, people reached out to me because they needed to know who was sitting in my chair. It was that important the job. Uh, I mean, I didn't see my, myself as uh, like self-important, but uh, uh, apparently, people wanted to know who they could call for, like an advance REM album or a Peter Buck interview or such. So uh, I got to meet a lot of people that way
0: what do you think your leg up was over those other 39 people who applied for it? Was it that you were so into REM in, in the first place, well, I, I and, and also that you've been doing your, you know, your own fanzine and, and I had and done a lot of, a lot of
1: writing about IRS artists, not just REM. In fact, there's a funny story about meeting REM and eventually interviewing them. i will get to, but I had, I had uh, interviewed Boingo, Boingo, wall of voodoo, uh, let's active, uh, the go-go's, um, and uh, many times the so executives would come out to the Chicago shows because Chicago is an important market because IRS had a Chicago uh, head of marketing and promotion uh, stationed in the, uh, I guess, the a and office or whatever office that would have been at the time. Um, so I got to know them. So I wasn't a complete stranger. Plus my, my college roommate, Wazmo Nariz, had been uh, one of the very first IRS artists as, as had Scafidge who had written about quite a bit as well. So they, they nice. knew me, and I knew them. Uh, I I'd interviewed uh, Dave Wakeling from uh, from English Beats. But a, a very funny thing, I was then scheduled to interview REM. And uh, unfortunately, uh, maybe I'm oversharing here, but I've had a lifelong um, problem with sleep. I just cannot sleep. I couldn't sleep as a high school student I or a college student or in my 20s or in my 60s. Uh, I've just always been challenged for sleeping. I just have a a mind that just won't uh, quit uh, chattering. And I had one of those nights, uh, the night before I was supposed to interview uh, R.E.M., it was just a night where I I did not get to sleep. Uh, Dawn came, and I was still tossing and turning. Of course, I tell you, you know, the experts tell you to get out of bed if that's the case. But anyway, I'm still tossing and turning, and I think, shit, this is a drag because um, I hear they're really intelligent, these guys in R.E.M., and I want it to be at my peak of whatever intelligence I have. And uh, Anyway, I called my predecessor. I, my, I didn't realize she was a predecessor at the time, but I called the erstwhile head of publicity at, at IRS and said, well, will, will REM be in Chicago maybe a, a second day? Because I, I woke up today really not feeling uh, terribly sharp. I didn't sleep. Uh, I didn't really wake up. I, I've been up since last night. I." Uh, uh I really should have no business interviewing Peter Buck today or Mike Mills or, or Michael Stipe and uh the this person at IRS said well just put the the microphone in front of Peter Buck and and he'll he'll do most of the talking and I took that that advice and it, you know, as as I later came up to know by uh, working with him, Peter's very loquacious and I, I say that as a compliment. He he's, he's talkative, but he has great things to say. He's funny, he's personable, he takes an interest in the person he's talking with, but he does talk. So uh that was pretty good. Um and they were staying at a at a friend's apartment. If you can imagine REM staying in an apartment, crashing on floors and couches uh in Ravenswood when they played Park West in 1983. Um, that's what, uh, that's how I found them. So the, the couple that, that, um, uh, had the apartment were making dinner all the while as I was interviewing them at about four in the afternoon and they asked me to stay for dinner and I'm like, wow, well, that's very nice of you. That's an honor. But now's when they really find out that I'm a blathering idiot because I'm, I'm losing my second wind, but I got a third wind and, uh, I was even like chattier and, and more happening over dinner. Uh, this is without any sleep. Uh, you know, beer helped. And um, um, I think a little bit of coffee all day helped. Uh, but I made it through dinner. So one day I was at the, uh, I was at work at, uh, at at IRS on the AM Records lot. And um, I'm walking to my car. I didn't hear trumpet that night, uh, this particular night. Uh, but I'm walking to my car with, with REM's manager. And uh, I don't do many, uh, imitations or accents, but his is kind of hard to avoid with me. And he says, Carrie, you know how you got this job now, don't you? And, uh, I, I said, uh, well, uh, 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 no, not really. I mean, I, I, I interviewed for it. I, uh, they, they liked me. Uh, what were you going to tell me? They said, well, you got this job because we, uh, we met you that night. Uh, and We liked you. You did. I mean, it was like, I, I had no sleep. So I've, I've learned to fake uh, fake it well without, without sleep. Um, that was probably uh, you know the, the, the pinnacle of, of all of that. But uh, I'm glad I made They, sub, good, they I
0: subliminally know. gave you uh, motivation to not sleep now because things worked out well when you didn't that's sleep. That's right, that's right. Things work out best when I don't, which is most of the time. But um,
1: um, now there are things like meditation apps and legal cannabis and all kinds of things to help. Um, uh, but anyway, no, uh, so REM repeatedly, was a major, you know, facet in my life. And, uh, just last month, I guess you could still call it last month. It was early November. And now it's the end of December, uh, November 5th, uh, big stars, third started. It started in, in LA and I, I've given up my publicity career, except that I still do it for this, um, foundation that I'm a part of called the wild honey foundation. You can find it on Facebook. And uh, Wild Honey is, is an organization of music freaks and geeks and historians and collectors and crate diggers and journalists and behind the scenesers. Uh, I, I fit in there pretty well. Uh, and, and they, they produce uh, very ambitious concerts, uh, all of which are benefits for autism research because the, the guy who started it, Paul Rock, has a son who is autistic was writing symphonies incidentally, but uh, is non nonverbal. Anyway, uh, uh you know, there have been tributes to Big Star. There have been tributes to, to Buffalo Springfield, to the Beatles, to the Beach Boys, to the band, and that's just the B bands, uh, to the Kinks, to the Loving Spoonful. Uh, they just did Big Star again this year. So uh, it was a pleasure to, to run into Mike Mills of R.E.M. again. He's very approachable. You know, they all are. I was not able to make it to, uh, the 40 Watt Club in in Athens, Georgia, a few weeks ago for the 40th anniversary of Chronic Town. Just just certain things, you know, are not doable. But uh, um, but I was really happy to hear that uh, it was a great event and all the members came and I was there in spirit
0: what was your approach to selling rem like what was the thing that you brought to the table when it came to breaking rem to you know a bigger and bigger public
1: that's a good question i'm not sure i had an angle i think they were just very well very well situated by then as a band that was climbing i continued to make them available Uh, i continued to feed the press um with their um college radio progress they would always go number one in college and i would always Put out press releases about that. I, I, you know, just in general, I wrote a lot, a lot of very big proposals, including a twenty or thirty-page proposal to Rolling Stone. By now, it was about 1988, and Rolling Stone had always covered the band and always gave them a the feature, but um, they hadn't put them on the cover. And before I was through, I wanted a, an REM cover, so I put together twenty pages. Only about three or four of that was uh, my writing. The remaining 17 or so pages, um, all the key press that they've gotten, stories in spin. I think by then they'd been on the cover of Spin. They'd been on the cover of Musician. They'd been on the cover of Band. They'd been on the cover of Music and Sound Output. They'd been on the cover of Cream. They just hadn't been in Rolling Stone yet, so... um, um, you know, I just kind of used all of all of the credibility that they had to try to foster more credibility. And I forget whether we got them onto SNL on my watch or not. Um we may have. I, I kind of forget. I know they were eventually on, but that too was a was a place I wanted them to be. They were on Letterman, they were on uh, the Tonight Show with uh with Leno. They were on Arsenio. Um, so I you know, I had a lot of great great moments with them. Uh, including being in a room as they were writing and and doing the original video of Driver 8, which eventually became my my license plate. Uh,
0: Hmm. You
1: know, I was was there. There was a moment for uh, The Cutting Edge. By the way, The Cutting Edge was an amazing part of IRS Records. It was uh, every month IRS had its own TV show. It was kind of like an indie rock documentary show hosted by Peter Zaremba of The Fleshtones. Yeah. I remember it uh, produced by our, by IRS. And, uh, you know, so they, they allowed me to interview my, my friend and mentor from Chicago, Willie Dixon, who by now lived in LA as did I, we, we he moved to LA a few years before I did lived in Glendale and I, I did an off inter- camera interview with him. Um, and, uh, and you know, that, that show ended up changing the world in, in a lot of ways. Um, Sometimes they would do a show surrounding surrounding a regional scene, and they did it they did a cutting edge episode, pretty much uh, detailed, chronicled the the music scene of North Carolina at the time, which was the DBs, Chris Damey, Peter Holzapple, Don Dixon, Marty Jones, um, the Windbreakers uh, 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 Dexter, Romweber. Weber, uh, I Mitch that, Easter, Mitch Easter, of course. Um, so, and and, and I, and, and, and for each episode, there would also be a screening on the A and M lot, the Charlie Chaplin lot, in a screening room, and we're able to invite the press and other VIPs to attend. So, one night um, there was going to be uh, the screening of the North Carolina scene episode, and I get a call from a an austin journalist who's in town a very famous one also former former rolling stone editor at the very beginning author uh, i think he wrote for the austin chronicle and the austin statesman ed ward a very famous rock uh journalist music journalist and he was in town and um i always ribbed him because i was actually i always stood in admiration of him because he wrote me a letter of rejection Rolling Stone. I was 13 years old and I deserved a letter of rejection. But I was very flattered that he bothered to even like put put a, a, a buck slip and a, and a typewriter and write to me and, and tell me why this didn't work. And I forget what the reasons were, but I mean it was you know the 13-year-old trying to write for Rolling Stone for, for one. But anyway, we became friends and uh South by Southwest did not exist yet. I really hadn't been to Austin much, although I have cousins in Texas, and one of them took me there one day, but didn't know a whole lot about Austin, Um, but I invited him to the screening, and after the screening, he comes up to me and says, he says about the the North Carolina scene, he said, that's no scene. You want a scene, come down to Austin. In fact, I I can even get the Chamber of Commerce to to, to help defray the cost of coming down to Austin. So, I introduced him to the producer of The Cutting Edge, Carlos Grasso, and uh, those two started talking, and Sure enough, the, the Chamber of Commerce, and uh, there, was, there was like an Austin Music uh, Union or committee all helped bring the cutting edge, about four people and cameras from LA to Austin, whereupon uh, they, they, uh, you know, there was quite a scene going on at the time. There was the Reavers, there was the True Believers, Doctors, Mob, Poison, uh, no, no, the Doctors, Mob, uh, True Believers, Uh, Dino Lee, uh, Daniel Johnston, um, the list went on and on. And some of these people became famous after they left the bands they were in at the time, or certain bands like Zeitgeist changed their name to the Reavers. Anyway, uh, there was a duo from from Austin by way of Wisconsin called Timbuk3, married couple. Uh, Timbuk3 referred to the fact that the third member of the band was a beatbox. So two guitarists and a beatbox and very quirky left of center songs. And they got signed and uh, they had a hit with the Future So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades on IRS, all because of this uh, cutting edge uh, exposure that we had to Austin, that's the band we signed. And they got into Saturday Night Live. I actually, uh, they had a number, the top 10 single with uh, the Future So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades. Right, it's huge, huge song. Huge song, very, very quirky. and I happened to call. I happen to call Saturday Night Live at a time that they were in need of a replacement act because their musical guests had had a uh, canceled on, them. and they're like, "Could could we get them by by Thursday for rehearsal?" I'm like, "You, you, you get you get them in two hours, yeah." Uh, they they flew out to New York, uh, made the Thursday rehearsal, and uh, played "The Future So Bright" on, a, on on Saturday Night Live. It was one of my culminating events, uh, at IRS records, uh, working with them and, and achieving that for them. So, I mean, they never had to hit that big again. They weren't a career band in the way that say REM was, but, um, you know, it was, it was, it was crazy. It was amazing to get this couple from, uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, uh, by way of, of, of Austin onto Saturday night live. And they played every other uh, late night show while they were, while they were at it.
0: Were you at SNL with them? I did not go, which was a big mistake. <laughs> to go back to REM, so you're saying that you actually saw them writing "Driver Aid." They weren't really writing it; they were working it out, right? Yeah, because I've I've always read that Bill Berry sort of originated that one, and obviously yeah. they have a very collaborative process. But I find I find Bill their Bill whole Barry process. fascinating. Big,
1: big Bill Berry, as I recall, was a big uh, creative factor in, in "Driver Aid," but you know they all shared band-wide um, credit on all songs. It was kind of hard to know who wrote what. I think it's safe to say that Mike Mills wrote Don't Go Back to Rockville. Right. It's safe to say that Michael Stipe wrote the bulk of the lyrics. Um, it was an interesting dynamic between the members. And saying. they didn't fight over publishing because they shared everything. That's right. They still have management. They are still managed in Legacy uh, by the same manager in Athens, Georgia um you know because they still have business they still have royalties they still have sync licensing they still have uh, record sales reissues, uh interview re- interview requests everything but a reunion exactly and, uh, it's fine with me I, I i think i good for them for not reuniting i mean sure it'd be great to hear some new rem music but good for them for, for you know remaining resolute about that
0: so at what point in the process would you hear each new rem album like would they say okay here's here's fables of the reconstruction here's life Switch pageant you know yeah. this is what you're going to work and and That's would right. you be excited to hear it where did you have uh, well, and, reactions and about specifically about like oh this one's going to be huge or this one's wonderful or this one's challenging well here's how it went
1: we we, we had anr people at, at, at irs but they did not have anr input artist and repertoire input song input production input even cover art input into um REM albums. REM delivered their albums. Period. They they uh, they they chose the producer. They chose the studio. They made the album. They they created the art, and then sent, sent them to us. When when they were sent to us, I think you know the president of the company might listen to it, but then he would run off. Somebody would run off uh, cassettes, and I would listen to the on cassette in my office, in my car, at home, and uh, hearing a song like "Can't Get There From Here" or "Driver 8, or this goes out to the one I love, or uh, certain others. You just knew that there were going to be very big songs. And yet, I got to town and I uh, put on K-Rock, which was a little bit different from Chicago's WXRT then, then and now. Um, and it was like, you know, constant Thompson Twins, uh, Duran Duran, uh, uh, Bronski Beat, uh, um, you know, uh, Pet Shop Boys. It wasn't quite... It wasn't quite South Central Rain, I'm Sorry, by 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 R.E.M. Yeah. Our, head of radio, our head of radio promotion, which is a very different job from mine, told me that, our, that K-Rock had told him that South Central Rain by R.E.M., kind of an acoustic song, sounded too much like a folk song for their sound. So we didn't, it, it took a while to get R.E.M. onto modern rock radio. Although at some point it happened, I think probably with the document album, which was our final one, and the song "The One I Love," which is just a plain out rock song, nothing folk about it. But then, those same radio stations, K Rock, cetera, had no no trouble playing an even folkier song uh, uh, in "Losing My Religion," which is you know mandolin, uh, right? Which is uh, you know, so I mean that that that. But by then, uh, modern rock radio had changed; it had gone less techno, at least for then. Uh, you know, bands like Duran Duran and Rhythmix were fading. And uh, this is just before uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam and, and uh, Nirvana had taken over. Uh, but, yeah, that's uh,
0: 90, that's 91. So you had unplugged right. by yeah. that point. So, which is what they yeah. used to promote that album. Yeah. Um, but yeah, which is a different, it's a different sound than, you know, in 85 when they're doing, you know, driver eight, you know, or 86 where they have, you know, Don Gaiman who produced, you know, melon cap, that big drum sound on, you know, even fall on me, which is maybe sort of folkier, but it still has a bigger sound than the stuff on fables construction did.
1: And, and, you know, they continued to have video hits on MTV and all the press was undeniable. So radio eventually embraced them. Um, now by then, I think all of us at IRS were very emotionally attached to them, so it was not a fun meeting. And, and by the way, we knew their contract was ending; it was no secret to us, and it was in all the gossip columns that, that uh, they were being courted by uh, Columbia, by by Virgin, and apparently by Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers ended up getting them. I mean, I, I kind of can't blame the band. Uh, Warner Brothers had a you know uh, its own global network. IRS had licensees um overseas uh so this gave them a, a a global uh infrastructure that they didn't have before not to mention a whole lot more money than me yeah, but i but J, jay boberg the the president of irs really did go out there he did his best he went out and played golf with them he talked with them he met with them constantly he was on the phone with them constantly you know if anyone could have done it it would have been jay um but i have to say it was a very sad meeting called into miles copeland's office and hear that uh, they'd be leaving us um and even though we still had the db's concrete blonde um and 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 various new artists we by now we had hunters and collectors we had the solo Go Go's jane wheatland and and melinda carlisle we had finding cannibals we had general public we had solo dave wakeling um we had beat rodeo a lot lot of other stuff to work on um there was the realization that we were no longer going to have the the, the cache or the or the uh you know kind of front line uh marquee uh value of rem and the go goes had by then split up and the the alarm did not become the next big thing although they they certainly cont- continued to make good records and grow uh finding cannibals was about to have a hit but uh my my attitude became began to change a little bit i think and it became obvious so I started looking around and eventually went to Capitol Records, which is a big quantum leap because I am not what you call a corporate type, and now I'm basically department head of a the, the bi-coastal department of about nine
0: people. Did and an REM before they left, uh, you know, talk to you and say, "Look, it's been great working with you. You know, we just have to make this move," and like, did um, you have any communication directly? There was a,
1: not, not personally, no, and that's okay. But I think I think there were, there, there was a a message to the label from them, thanking the label for all it had done. And it was, they were very sincere.
0: What was the culture shift like, uh, going from IRS to capital? I had to
1: look in the mirror. I couldn't just wear a t-shirt and, you know, bad jeans to the office. Um, uh, there was a lot more dressing up for, for starts there was a lot more uh, the, the executives were more developed as executives they 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 had a comfort level as executives which which I didn't immediately have and, and now I was not a vice president but a department head of a very big department um it was a lot more corporate uh, some of them went out drinking afterwards i never really got into that um probably a million things I could have done to ingratiate myself more into the corporate culture, but uh, it just wasn't me. Uh, but that's OK. I did my my little publicity thing and I, I continued to call press and I had nine people helping me. Plus, for, for the, the really important artists or ones that, that had it in their budget, we had an independent uh, publicity as well. Uh, uh, people like uh, the Beastie Boys had their own indie publicist um, Paul McCartney, as I I mentioned, had his own. Um, So, you know, I was very surprised when Tina Turner um, not only did not have her own independent publicist, but one day I I came to the office wearing like a bad T-shirt and bad jeans and I had no meetings. And I get a call from her her manager at the time, who I won't try to imitate his his Australian accent, but it was good day. Uh, Tina would like to meet with you. And she'd like to meet with you at half past twelve. I'll never forget that half past twelve uh, at the Sunset Marquee at her cottage in the Sunset Marquis Hotel in West Hollywood. I'm like today. Uh, I mean, I you know dressed like a you know I I, I I I dressed like a homeless person today. Doesn't matter. She'll see you at half past twelve. Uh, ask for ask for her by this sooner than at the uh, at, at the uh, desk. So I did. I got there at half past past twelve. Get there at 1225 i knock on her door and tina lets me in and i uh, I, I think to myself well you know I, I need to ask her how she envisions the best tina turner publicity campaign to, to be what, what what does she want out of this does, does she know a lot about publicity the, what what worked and what didn't with uh, her uh you know previous capital record that was the, the, the really big hit um and she said she just wanted to do one interview and one interview only with uh, a writer from vanity fair and that was it i said really you don't want to do two or three or four or 100 said, no i just want to do the one and gave me the gave me the writer's name and uh i called uh called that writer at vanity fair right after our meeting and got him on the phone and said do you want the the only interview that tina turner is going to give sure so so hmm. that was amazing. um but i got to meet another legend
0: uh, was it a, was it like a really great interview that you could use for, you know, in place of all those other ones she didn't do?
1: Oh, it was, it was amazing. It was, you know, months later because of the lead time. Uh, but sure it was, it was, it was an amazing interview. And plus she was Tina Turner, a world-class pop star. I mean, by then she was, she was not from of the chitlin circuit. She was hanging out with Bowie and Jagger and living in, sure. and, you know, a whole different person from the one that she, you know, when she was married to Ike what she was she done.
0: like in her uh cottage
1: oh it's very 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 personable offered me coffee uh sit down uh, you know it was a very very pleasant maybe 40 45 minute uh, meeting uh but the agenda was very short she wanted to do that one inter- one interview and one interview only uh, so that was cool uh, smithereens um i i had you know known about them since they were on enigma and capital acquired enigma and you know took the the smithereens and poison under wing as as core artists, and uh, I had a big team of indies, et cetera. Uh, the whole staff was working on the smithereens. Eventually, we got them on, on on the Saturday Night Live, which was great. Um, you know, I was the, I was the team captain, and I actually had the idea of going to the president of the label and asking if he would make a call to Saturday Night Live. I I, I was like thinking, what what could I do that like nobody else does here. And I, you know, I didn't know that they wouldn't necessarily know the the name of the president of Capitol. I mean, not 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 household, um, but uh, um, but he called uh, along with all of us, and eventually they too had a uh, a vacancy, and and you know, we got the Smithereens on. So you know, a lot of good things happened to Capitol. Um,
0: yeah, Smithereens, uh, I would think, are right in your power pop wheelhouse. Those oh yeah. are good
1: records too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely, definitely my power pop wheelhouse. Uh, I had quite a few power pop wheelhouse people at, at IRS from, from Less Active to the DBs, to the Balancing Act, uh, you know, et cetera there too. So, um, and, and then that continued as I went on to, an, uh, maybe not Enigma Records, where I went for a, a cup of coffee after Capital for some reason, but I went to work for a label called uh, Morgan Creek that had Mary's Danish and a group called Eleven that were kind of like, the Beatles meet Lenny Kravitz, but strangely
0: power pop. You send me the Eleven record. I reviewed that record. I liked it, too. I, I was okay. going to actually ask you, and I'm wondering if Eleven is the answer, but I was going to ask you if there are bands that you thought were going to be big that weren't big.
1: Well, I was kind of hoping that uh, we could break Mary's Danish again uh, at, at, while well, at Morgan Creek. They I had, had I reviewed big, them, too. They had a big K-rock hit, and and there was no reason that uh, uh, you know they couldn't have an equally big hit, but it just wasn't and uh, Mir- Miracle Legion, Critics, Critics' Darlings. We had Shelby Lynn over there. We had Janice Ian with the album in which she chose to come out of the closet. Um, so, I mean, and, you know, she, she was very frank about that and I was very uh, upfront about it when I was pitching interviews and she was very happy to talk about it. She, you know, was very happy to come out of the closet and it just so happened it was on my watch. So working with her was, was amazing as well. Shelby Lynn uh had that that album that i mentioned it was kind of a transition between music row and um uh you know recurring kind of indie self um she was a rebel we knew it um that was part of the part of the pitch um we had little feet i mean obviously minus lowell george but uh, uh they've been that way for like you know 35 years without right years without little george so um uh, um, we had the first, or first first post-Lowell album, which wasn't, uh, wasn't a bad album at all. Miracle Legion, 11. And that's pretty much it for three years. A few of those had second albums. A few of them didn't. And from there, I went to a label that I really liked called the Discovery Records. Uh, now, Discovery Records was an old jazz label from the 50s, 60s, 70s that uh, Jack Holtzman had acquired. Uh, Jack, of course, the, the, the founder of Elektra Records. Right. And um he by then was semi-retired. He was in his 60s, he had an office there, but semi-retired. It was run by somebody else. But uh over there we had such artists as Too Much Joy, uh Candy Kane. We had the entire Antones uh Records Blue Stable out of Austin, Texas. Uh we had Bernie Toppin. We had Morchiba. Um it was a great job. And I thought, you know, I'm really happy here. This is a little bit like IRS. Some times have changed and there could never be another IRS. But the staff, this office, this roster feels a lot like IRS. And uh, one day I'm in New York and my, my assistant calls and says, do you know Seymour Stein? And I, I said, you mean of Sire Records? Uh, I know of him. Why? Because he seems to be taking over Discovery Records. He is. Yeah, he's here doing that right now. And I was in New York. and. Uh, um, he pretty much cleaned house, and I wasn't able to stay on. Uh, which is when I went independent. Uh, at that point in time, I knew that I, I didn't want to go through the the label ringer anymore. It was too disappointing. Uh, if I didn't get laid off or fired, uh, uh, I I, 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 I kind of burned out on it. But with, with with indie projects, I could always choose. Assuming they wanted to work with me, I could always uh, choose my ninety day window to work with an artist, and then start a new window and always be different and i could have a roster that was very reminiscent of me so i had a company with a partner for a while it went very well and we, we did some great things and uh, then i started my own company Conqueror, which uh, i always thought would be the company that i retired from and well, is. this year i retired which is crazy to believe because i'm not an old person uh, but uh, i guess numerically I'm, I'm at the age where you can do that and uh, i guess i have closed my company and gave my 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 employees and, and my associates and um, my clients all six months notice and gave myself six months notice and then moved on top of it so it's been a crazy year of change for me But what, what I was, the, I what was do, the tipping
0: point for, what was the tipping point for you to decide that you wanted to shut down kangaroo and not be an independent publicist anymore
1: um some math equations that showed me that i could first of all uh, i'm i'm very fortunate and being being able to have done that because not everybody can and i realized that um uh and and you know a lot of conversations with, with my wife about that um and, and the realization too that uh i would like to I, I haven't really traveled i uh even when i worked at capital and it, capital being a british company uh we had a band called the london fireboys and they had a british press day in which uh we were to take American writers to London to interview the choir boys there. I'm kind of a hard rock metal band, um, and I couldn't make it because I had very bad back pain. So even my one sponsored trip to, to Europe, I wasn't able to make. My back is perfect now. I do I do yoga. I go to a chiropractor. I I, I do deep stretches. Not not a pain in the world. At my in more advanced age, so I've never been to Europe. I want to go to Europe. I want to go to places like Costa Rica and Australia and New Zealand. I want to travel, uh, but I want to write books. Um, I want to leave, you know, for years and years, I've been part of the artist support team. I've been, I've done artist support and there's nothing wrong with that because I've worked with some of the greats of all time. I, you know, uh, I got to work with REM. I, uh, Cheap Trick was one of my, my indie clients. I, I, I worked with Bobby Rush and, and, uh, uh, all kinds of other blues people, uh, uh, you know, I've worked with uh, Bonnie Raitt, and and uh, um, you know, just so many, so many great artists. You know, Paul McCartney, even if he was like a layer away from 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 me with his own, you know, team uh, in between the label and me. Um, but I decided that I want to be the artist now. And uh, um, I mean, I'll never be an artist in terms of creating music or or uh, you know, an oil oil, oil painting uh, on the wall, but. Uh, I want to be the I want to be an author. I uh, I've always been a historian. And and this might sound crazy, but Facebook is what got me back into that. I, I found myself writing a lot of stuff for Facebook about you know music histories on people's birthdays. And I thought, you know, I seem to really enjoy doing this. I seem to go back and edit these posts all the time. Like the, the next morning I'll wake up and think, oh God, I I I, I had the word banned. And they, T-H-E-Y, in the same sentence. Would would it have been it or they? And I was thinking about, you know, I really am at heart a writer. My mother wrote a a college textbook that's still in print on Greek mythology, called Mythology and You. She still gets royalties for it. And uh, I, uh, I, I hired somebody to write a Wikipedia article about me, you know, esteemed publicist, and it got taken down. Um... Because I guess uh, I'm like I'm, I'm a service person. I'm, I'm, I'm a plumber. I'm a I'm, I'm, a, I'm a handyman. Um, what I really want to be is uh, an author, and I think that I've got the chops for it. It's a matter of really finding a topic now. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about artist biographies. I have a a bit of a Chicago angle that I think would be interesting for for, for a book. I have a, a desert book about desert music that I in the history of desert music. You know, all these all these rock stars live here uh, now. Um, you know, Paul Rogers and Terry Reid and Eric Burden, Dick Dale lived here, Victoria Williams, Jeanette Napolitano, uh, you know, Palm Springs, Joshua Tree, full of rock stars. Right, you know, That could be some kind of an angle for a long story or, or a book. Um, there's a genre of music that's never been, had a book written about it, mainly because uh, everybody from that genre is dead by now. Uh, but uh, I'm thinking about this uh, this book and who could be my interview subjects. I'm thinking about blues biographies, but then I'm thinking about what I really have the enterprise journalism in me to fly to, you know, uh, uh, Helena, Arkansas, and try to find Sonny Boy Williamson's grandkids. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I've gone through a lot of thought process on this, but I'll tell you this much. Um, I hope to have a project by summer because uh, I love the desert, but the summers are really hot. And I want to be in my air-conditioned office right here uh, with a book project to write, or at least, you know, several articles. I, I'm working on liner notes. I just did some liner notes for uh, my, my my longtime client, uh, Omnivore Recordings. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to produce a, a box set of an artist who uh, we've all, all heard of but has never had a career box set. Of Who's that? I don't, want to, I don't want to say I, don't want to say. <laughs> I thought I'd try it. His repertoire is all over the place, including on labels that no longer exist. So uh, it, it's required a lot of clearance. Um, so that might be this year, uh, and, and 2023. But I really want to. I really, I really want to get to work on a book. Uh, so that's my my goal for summer of 23. But, so
0: you don't want the book to be a memoir, though, like my life, the adventures uh, in the publicity trade, my life in the. My music
1: my, my my life as a mid level uh, music executive on the West Coast is not that notable. Um. But some of the people I've worked with are, are potential subjects. Uh, a lot of people I've worked with are per- perfectly capable of writing their own memoirs. So I need to find somebody who who, who may not be, uh, who or wants to cooperate. I would love to work with an old living, surviving, lose person. Uh, and I, I think I realized that when I was reading the, the uh, as told to, biography of Bobby Rush, who's a, a longtime client and good friend. And thinking, this is a really well-written book. I'm just sorry I didn't write it. And then I was reading, I'll drop a name here, and it's a Chicagoan, somebody I'm sure you know or know of, Aaron Cohn,
0: a good friend of mine from Chicago, Evanston. Yeah, fellow Evanston grad, Evanston Township High School graduate with me, and we have the same influential journalism teacher. And when I think of someone who knows the history of blues and soul and jazz in Chicago, it's Aaron
1: well, he wrote this book called Chicago Soul. It wasn't it wasn't the first Chicago Soul but Robert Kruder wrote that, um, and uh, but by the time I read Mark's angle, which was more of the history of Chicago Soul, but how it related to si- the civil rights movement, that was called Move On Up, a, a Curtis Mayfield title, but it was a song about civil rights and, and post Martin Luther King and, and right. And that, that's what that, that was the first book that I read. Seeing that, knowing that I would be retiring in the next year or two and thinking, damn, you know, I, I, I love Aaron, but I wish I'd written this book. Um, I, I need to write a book not unlike this. I mean, not not the same subject at all, but, um, you know, I had actually, I actually had recollections of like Chicago's record row. I mean, everybody knows, everybody knows that Nashville's still to this day, to some extent, has a music row. Record companies aren't necessarily on it anymore. Some of them are in big high rises downtown. Some of them are are out of the Music Row district or, or just outside. And Music Row itself, which used to be old houses that would, that would house BMI or RCA or you know Sony Music Publishing or you know Reba McIntyre's management, you know that's all being bulldozed and that's all being developed and that's all becoming high rises in its own right. But Chicago had a record row. And the only reason I even know about that because I was a teenager when it was when I was a kid even before I was born was it like this big thing, but I was music director of my high school radio station uh, to, to to go back a thousand subjects uh, in Winnetka, Illinois, W N T H eighty eight point one FM. I was the music director, and part of my job was to uh, to round up all of these um, records that you know for airplay and and. Station wasn't going to play all of them, and I managed to take a number of them home. But uh, one day they they, they told me, "Karen, get get us the Woodstock soundtrack. We, we definitely want the Woodstock soundtrack." So I did a little bit of research, and I found out that it was on Cotillion Records, uh, a uh, Atlantic Records imprint, and um, uh, and that was distributed by United Distribution on South Michigan Avenue. Uh, like 1800 South Michigan Avenue. And I'm thinking that's interesting because uh, Chest was 2120 South Michigan Avenue and uh, Cotillion is distributed by United, which is 1827 South Michigan Avenue. And Gene Chandler, the Duke of Rural, has an office at 1321 South South Michigan Avenue. And Al Smith, who produced Jimmy Reed, and had a few little indie blues labels of his own, Blues on Blues, uh, also had an office in the 1321... South Michigan Avenue building. And then there was Brunswick and Dakar records, which was at 1449 South Michigan Avenue. And they had, uh, you know, Tyrone Davis and the shy lights and, you know, real hits coming out of that building that used to be VJ records. Then there was the shuttered chess building at 2120 South Michigan Avenue. that was first taken over by a guy named Gerald Sims, who was a uh, session musician, but eventually taken over by, um, Willie Dixon, the Willie Dixon family for those as the Blue Southern Foundation. And Chess was around the corner at 21st and Prairie, but still, you know, record row. So there was this whole record row. And uh, I'm just sorry that, you know, I think there's been a TV special on it. I never really got to write about that, but that was part and parcel and part of the risk I ran when I left Chicago, that I would no longer be this, like, go-to authority on Chicago music. But, you know, now that I have time to think and recollect and I've, I've consulted some of the interviews I've done back then, I'm thinking there could be a good book in some of these interviews, updated. Um, so I don't really know. I discovered the rockabilly scene in Chicago, but then there's a book that just came out about Mid- Midwest country and Western. So I don't know if that's covered there. Um, uh, and then, of course, there was the whole sort of emergence of new wave and indie rock. I mean, I interviewed a ministry for their first album. Al Jorgensen came to my house. We are like the two least likely people to ever, ever to like be in the same... Enclosure, uh, same house, doing a story together. But he came to my coach house in Ridgelyville, and we did we did a uh, Illinois Entertainer cover. So I have all these interviews, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to you know figure out what might be a good way to either package those or might what might be the unifying thread or or, or what. But you know it might harken to my Chicago years. It might not. It might be. Like I went to I mean I went to Americana Fest this year, as a retiree, but as a music fan, because I still go to these things as a music fan. Went to the African American Music Museum, thinking that something here might jog my 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 psyche. At. Ah, you know, right here, there's an exhibit on somebody who ought to be a biography. So I'm, I'm I'm letting my I'm letting myself reassociate like that, but I really am trying to find a a a book to write during the hot desert months uh
0: because that'd be a good indoor activity we have to keep me posted on that because it's it's tough to figure out the book to write and uh i, I have been having wrestled with that a fair amount um you know i wish you wish you luck on it it seems like there are all sorts of great topics out there and uh, there are i mean you
1: know i'll, I'll find one it, it'll come to me or, or somebody will, will present themselves to me uh, uh or i might you know, I, I, now I did contact somebody uh, with a very detailed and respectful uh, um, uh, proposal. I didn't hear back.
0: And that really kind of hurt me. It's somebody I didn't know that well. Well, but, you have to get used to that part of it because that's yeah, what happens. Even if you're established, it's- This wasn't even from a publisher. It, it's, really. such a, is, it's such oh, an irritating uh, business, yeah, especially- well, so, like I mean, you know. But I'm used to that. I mean, I, 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 I was pitching
1: publicists, uh, pitching journalists as a publicist for, for 40 years. So I'm used to being rejected Uh, and and not only that, but the world was not waiting for a 67 year old, uh, uh, you know, newly minted freelance writer, I I realize also, but I I do think that, you know, by this time in my life, uh, a journalist for 15 years, a publicist in in the music business in Los Angeles for 39 years. And, uh, you know, then now again, a, a, a writer and never really stopped writing i i continue i wrote all of a lot of my own uh, bios and press releases i hired a lot of them out during the conqueror era because i was so busy but uh for all the record companies uh you know i always wrote the the artist's bio well we had a staff writer at capitol so i take that back but you know I, I was able to step into that role at any time that i needed to at morgan creek i wrote all the uh the written materials again and at discovery
0: I wanted to point out by the way that uh you know Conqueroo, the name of your company, is a Chicago Blues reference as well, Willie Dixon. That is
1: that is correct. That is correct. Hoochie Coochie from- Man. Hoochie Coochie Man and uh also I'm a man by Bo Diddley. And, and if you look at the lyrics to that as well, you'll find Conqueror. Which was first? Um good question. Probably Hoochie Coochie Man. That's Probably that's look before it rock and Roll. But uh, since then I've been to uh Schwab's Schwab's, a, a department store on Beale Street, and in, 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 in Memphis, where they we can buy a John the Conqueror root, or you can buy a mojo, or you can buy a black cat bone. Uh, you know, all of these used in voodoo rituals in the South. So it was, it was a, the great thing about Conqueror was that the the domain was available. Uh, it had been in the name of a Texas band, and they had just given up the the online domain. Uh, I, I think I'd gone there, and they owned it. And then I went there, and nobody owned it, so I I claimed it. And I just figured it was a kind of title that had enough of a wink, wink, where um, anybody hearing it, if they knew anything about blues, they they think, wow, this this guy's got some inside information you know uh, I didn't want to call it Baker media I didn't want to call it uh you know yes dear yes please uh you know all these all these kind of cowtowing names that that you know certain independent publicity companies have it was just going to be called and not not kangaroo public relations and not Kangaroo media just kangaroo and uh deal with it and uh, so people did deal with it for uh I think between fourteen and eighteen years that I had the doors open it was it was a very- great
0: and the last thing i want to ask about Conqueror, and and obviously, you know it's you felt like it was time to um time to retire and 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 you were able to, and you have other aspirations. so those are very positive reasons to you know make that kind of transition. Um, how much? had the business also changed between when you started and now, I mean, obviously it's changed a lot, but like how much, what, what were you feeling the most in terms of like, what was different from like 84 to, you know, 2022?
1: Well, I mean, you know, uh, we sent advanced cassettes of vinyl albums in 1984, uh, advanced cassettes were key. Uh, now you can just send it to somebody as an MP3. And obviously none of that existed. Um, I came into the world of, um, social media very naturally however um so i i totally understand the the workings i think of facebook and twitter and even instagram but what i what i really feel that i'm too old for at this point is tiktok so we'll let the tiktok generation of record promotion uh arrive well, without me uh, that'll be fine i mean not that it would have affected the work that i do which was dealing with journalists and those who actually write you know long form stories about music but um you know, I think I think TikTok is probably a, a good cue, too, with X's stage left. Uh, I will never be totally cutting edge. Um, a lot of my friends who I respect and who are, who are writers have great things to say or articulate things to say about the best recordings of the year, recordings by uh, Taylor Swift or Beyonce. I know that I'll never have the words for, for that. I mean, I, I say that as one who's going into a writer, but also in, in terms of how the business has changed. A lot of uh, a lot of pop music is no longer really based on the blues rock model. I'm, I am of the blues rock model, but I'm also of the folk music and country music model. But then, so is country part of the blues rock model. Um, sure. So enough is changing, so that I think at 67, and I'm very public about my age, uh, it's probably a good time to, uh, uh, to 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 do other things. And and there's enough that I'm passionate about. It's a great time to listen to music, by the way. And I've been going out to hear live music, and I'm still every bit as strong as I was when I was 28. I out two, three nights a week. The only problem was finding live music to go here, out here in the desert. We had a, a venue in Palm Springs for a while that, that's on that's, that's pause. We put a few that are out in Joshua Tree or uh, nearby Yucca Valley. Uh, three, three great venues there that I go to. Long drives, but then, hey, it was a long drive for me to Drive from Studio City, LA to Santa Monica, LA to go to McCabe's or, or to drive from Studio City, LA where I live to the Grammy Museum for an evening program um, in the middle of rush hour. That, that, right. that took an hour and I was bumper to bumper. Now I'm 80 miles per hour going through mountain hairpin turns, but it's still 45 minutes. So, you know, it's a different, different, different experience. Life, life, life is different in every respect just about now. Uh, there are a lot of things that, that I see the next day on Facebook that happened in LA and I think, ah shit. that would have been a great event to have gone to or a great party that I would have been invited to if people thought I was local and I actually do come in for things. I do come in for concerts and parties, but uh can't make it to everything.
0: Well, congratulations on you know making this transition and you know having having done so much. You know great stuff and you know having all these really interesting stages and also being like this is what i want to do one of the hardest things is to know what you want to do and then actually to do it so so well, a lot of
1: people are not as lucky as to be able to change uh from their their day job um a lot of it was luck a lot of it was hard work uh it took a little bit of persuasion but but here i am um you know it's it's strange not to wake up and have a job to go to but i I try not to see it that way i think what can i write today what or what can i do or, or you know renovating the house I mean, what can i do to help with that or what adventure can i have uh, we've, we we live at the base of a mountain we've driven up the mountain to the town of Idlewild to visit friends who have a cabin up there we've driven to the high desert to, to go to art fairs we we, we went to a, a a mountain that was on christmas we had family plans fall through we drove to a uh, and you can see this on my facebook a uh like a mountain that was painted over a period of 30 years. An entire mountain was painted by a guy who made it a shrine to God. And then that's down by a, a sea, an inland sea called the Salton Sea. There are all these things to see around here, all these adventures, all these, you know, interesting things. And uh, plus I can do a daily yoga class, which is amazing. And sometimes that helps me think. So um, it's a very different life and a very different lifestyle. And I, I, given my brothers I might not have done this until I was 70 but I did it at 67 um, and and but uh, you know the deal was I'm going to try to write a few books before I go I I,
0: I, don't, I didn't leave any kids on this planet
1: um, so the books are going to be my kids
0: Wonderful talking with you Carrie Great talking to you. Thanks so much. I appreciate you doing it Carrie. That's it for episode 72 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Kerry Baker for sharing his memories and insights from a long career of pushing great music out into the world. Follow him on Twitter at Conqueroo1. That's C-O-N-Q-U-E-R-O-O-1, the number. He writes a lot about music there and even more on his Facebook page. Hero Pop is produced by Chris Swaite, whose future is so bright, well, you know. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Karol Pop on Twitter, at Caropopcast. You can follow me as well, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Karol Pop website, caropop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear more about upcoming episodes and events. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Karol Pop conversation. Thanks.